Hey, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Matthew chapter 7. Uh, we're going to uh, continue on in the series that we've been going through for quite some time called Disciple. We're going through Matthew 5 through 7, and then eventually we'll actually get to some of the other high points of Jesus' teaching throughout the book of Matthew and learning what it means to follow him. And so this morning we're going to actually look at just one verse. Um, and there's a lot in the one verse that we're going to look at. Because what Jesus does in all the words that we've just walked through in the number of months that we've been going through this series together... Jesus kind of gives this summary statement in verse 12 of Matthew 7 that gives us kind of this summary that if you and I can grasp it, it is kind of the key to unlocking everything else that he's just said to us. In fact, it's, it's almost like if we, you can, the, can equate it to like trying to take a drink of water out of a fire hose. You might get a little bit of water in your mouth, but you get a whole lot of water all over you. And that's kind of what the Sermon on the Mount is. And so when Jesus is going through and he's saying these very important words, he, he kind of creates this this one statement. It's almost like if you you know you've ever heard, you know, a, a pastor kind of says, you know, once you get to the end of the message, if you haven't heard anything today, hear this, or you haven't taken notes on anything, this is the one thing. It's kind of what Jesus does at this point. It's like the one thing. And I think it's important because I think it's kind of the way that that our minds work in terms of how we retain information. Um, Jesus is pretty smart. He was God. He knows how human beings work. And I think, because I know for me, the way that it usually works for me, when I hear a lot of information or I hear someone speak a message or preach, you know, from the scriptures, usually what I walk away with is not their outline. I walk away with one thing, maybe two, but usually it's one thing that got highlighted. In fact, that's true for our church. On any given Sunday morning, when someone comes up to me after service, other than the kind of the typical good, good message pastor, which you know how much I love that, is, is they'll come up to me, and I haven't had it happen one time yet, where someone comes up to me and says, that was a great message, and then they regurgitate my entire outline. And they never do that. But they come up and they say, you know what? When, when you said this, the Lord spoke to me about this in my life. And it's one thing. And they walk out of here with the one thing that the Holy Spirit wanted them to hear for the morning. I believe that's what Jesus is highlighting. He's saying, listen, there is one rule that I'm going to give you in the midst of the Sermon on the Mount. It's one rule. And if you can learn to live by this one rule, you will be able to embrace all these other difficult concepts that I've laid out for you and help your your understanding. So the one rule that Jesus gives, let me read verse 12 of Matthew chapter 7. He says, so in everything... Do to others what you would have them do to you, for this sums up the law and the prophets. Anybody ever heard that verse before? It's called the golden rule. And, it, and actually, it transcends Christianity because you see it in culture all the time. It's something that people use. And Jesus says this because if you go back to Matthew 5 and verse 17, Jesus talks about how he didn't come to abolish the law and the prophets. He actually came to fulfill them. And then he demonstrates through all the teaching how the law was basically what humanity had geared it towards was all the external behaviors. And what Jesus was talking about is that the law really has to apply to the heart, to the motivation. So that he comes to verse 12 in Matthew 7, and he says, listen, if you want to get all of what the law and the prophets are trying to communicate to you and I, then get this one rule. Get this one thing to understand. And so this morning I want to focus on that and begin by, by just looking at two things real quickly to help us understand something really important. Where does this rule apply? So, see, you and I, when we think of things that are difficult, we like to find ways that we have an out where they don't apply so that we don't have to live them. Jesus gives us some pretty specific statements about where the golden rule or where this concept of, of basically doing to others what you would want them to do to you in terms of the way you live your life, where this applies. And it, it comes in the, in the first part of the verse. The first thing is this. It applies 
in every situation. Jesus says three words. So in everything. I wish he said so in some things. So in the things that are easy. So in the situations where you want it to apply, apply it. No, he says so in everything. In every single season, in every single situation, in every context, in every relationship, in everything that you are living out in life, this rule applies. To look through this lens in our life. And I'm convinced the reason Jesus says so in everything is because most of us don't have problems with everything. We just have problems with some things. So we could probably do, most of us probably could say, you know what, 80% of my life I can live this way. Maybe even 90%, but but that's 10 or that 20% in our lives, for some reason, we have a hard time applying this in the way we treat other people around us. That's why Jesus gives this comprehensive statement. I've shared this before. One of my downfalls is when I drive. That's one of the 10 or 20%. I don't really live out, and I'm just confessing to you, do unto others as they would do unto you. I, I don't really live that out because, you know, when I drive, the road is filled with idiots. Anybody relate? They all drive around your car too, don't they? But something happened. Why is it that you can be standing outside a car and have a wonderful conversation with a human being, but the moment you get inside the car behind the wheel, they all become jerks and idiots? Why is that? It's because we're self-centered. Because, you know, that same person that, you know, cuts you off, somehow now they're less than human because they cut you off, or because they slow down too fast, or because they're going, whatever it is, you know, you, you come up with a reason of why, you know, especially, you know, when you, you go to merge, like an on-ramp, you know, that awkward moment where who goes first and everybody's counting cars to see who goes in, and then that one person, that one idiot gets out of turn. Anybody know that idiot? You've seen them on the, they, they drive all over Simi Valley all the time. You know what's really awkward is when that idiot is somebody that you know, and that's happened to me before. It used to happen in Newburgh, because Newburgh is a lot smaller than Simi Valley, and that idiot cuts you off, and then you drive him like, hey, pastor, how are you? I'm like, oh, man. That's that 10 or 20% of my life. What is it for you? Because, see, what Jesus knows what he's saying when he says, so in everything. Why? Because we want to find a loophole. We want to find that little area, and we try to apply it and say, you know what? That doesn't really go here, but it goes over here where it's easy but it's where it's difficult that God wants it to apply in our lives. So that in everything, and then, then Jesus says the second thing, to make again more comprehensive and really specific. He says also, does it, where does it apply? It applies for every person. He says, do to others. He doesn't just say do to some. He says, do to others. That's everybody. That's people around you. There's people you live with, people you drive by, people you, you work with, all those things, the relationship with the person sitting next to you right now, all that, that's, that's what Jesus is saying. In every situation, for every person, this applies. And the reason that's important is because if you're like me, you have a tendency, when somebody does something that you don't like, you don't want to treat them nicely or kindly. You want to make them pay or you want to assume the worst in them. We just have that tendency. We usually don't expect the best out of people. We assume the worst. Perfect example. I got caught in this. And it's like God, um, God's preparing for me to, to, in a sense, be humbled by the passage I know I was going to preach on. So we have a gardener that comes to their house that we rent. The owners pay a gardener and they come every week and they, you know, they mow the grass and they do some trimming. And they come every Saturday morning. And they're semi-consistent. They usually come between 8.30 and 10.30 and that's when they come. And so uh, not yesterday, but Saturday before, uh, it was about 8.30 in the morning and they weren't there, and there's about 9 o'clock. They weren't there, 9, 30, 10. And then sometimes we'll contact the owner and say, hey, you know, the gardener didn't show up this week. And so, But we didn't say anything. But I know inside I was just getting frustrated. It's like, come on, once a week you can show up. You can cut my grass. Come on. You know, I need to have my grass looking nice. You know, just very selfish thoughts. It's all about me, right? And so Tuesday comes, and they still haven't come. 
It's like they've missed a whole week, and I'm like, I'm frustrated. So I was at the office doing some work, and Kim texts me. She said, hey, the gardener showed up. And I'm like, oh, yeah, what's his excuse? That's what I'm thinking in my mind. And then the rest of the text I began to read, she said, yeah, he told me that his father-in-law passed away this weekend, and he needed to be with his wife. I felt like such an idiot. I was the idiot driving around the, the streets of Simi Valley. That was me. That I didn't give him the benefit of the doubt. I just assumed that he was either lazy or he couldn't manage his schedule well enough or there's some other bad excuse that he really wasn't a good excuse for him not to show up. How many times do we do that? That we don't apply this in every situation for every person because we assume the worst. So if I lose a loved one, what do I want somebody else to do? How should I treat them? I would want them to have love and compassion and patience for me, not what I did for our gardener. See, sometimes you and I want to have those certain loopholes and areas where people it doesn't apply, situations it doesn't apply, but this verse, verse 12, applies to every situation, to every person. So what I want to do now, looking at this one verse, is something that you and I have to come to grips with, and that is to talk about what this rule and this verse does not say. Because this is probably a verse that's misquoted very often in our culture for various reasons. That's why I want to, stay, want to go through what, it, what it's not communicating, what Jesus is not saying in this verse. The first thing that, that this rule is not saying is it's not saying don't do to others what you don't want them to do to you. That's not what it's saying. We, we would want this idea that we, we shift towards if I just don't do the bad things, I just don't do the negative things, then negative things and bad things won't happen to me. So instead of being the positive side, we, we take the negative side. And the reason this is interesting is because if you look at different philosophies and different faiths throughout history, you see some form of this golden rule show up. In fact, some people were in their own minds thinking that Jesus was quoting Confucius when he said this. Because Confucius lived about 500 years before Jesus. And so they thought, oh, well, Jesus was just, you know, no, Jesus actually predates Confucius because Jesus is eternal and kind of knew Confucius before he was born kind of thing. So he, he's God and he understands it. The difference is Confucius saying was in the negative. It was basically withhold doing bad things from other people so they'll withhold doing bad things to you. And that's usually the theme that usually comes up in other faiths. So Jesus comes along and he puts it in the positive and he says, do to others what you would have them do to you or for you. It's complete shift. And the reason that's important is because in our human nature, what do we default to? The negative. Well, I won't do something bad to them, so hopefully something bad won't happen to me. It's easier not to do the negative than it is to do the positive. And that's why sometimes this whole thing gets interpreted incorrectly. And that becomes part of, sadly, in our culture, part of what becomes this concept of Christianity is people know Christians by what? By what they don't do and what they stand against in our culture. If you ask the typical person who doesn't know Jesus, tell me about a Christian, they will most likely, probably eight times out of ten, tell you something negative. Yeah, they're the ones that judge me for doing this. That's the ones that they went out and picketed this because they didn't like that. And so it's all they come up with is this definition of not what they do in the positive, but what they stand against in the negative. That's why Jesus made this in the positive. That there should be, when somebody hears or thinks about someone who follows Jesus, there should be some kind of positive response to who that person is, not just the negative. See, the religious leaders had a lot of negative response, but Jesus in his day had a lot of positive response. Why? Because he was in the, in, he was, his life was about healing and forgiveness and restoration and salvation and caring for other people around him. 
number of years ago, I sat down for lunch with a, a, a friend of mine who's a pastor in the same city, and we were just talking about stuff, and he said, hey, he goes, you know what people are saying about the church you pastor? And this is when we were up in Newburgh, and I'm like, oh, no. <laughs> you never want to hear that. It's like, what are they saying about the church? He said, no, actually, he goes, it's good. I said, it is? He said, yeah. He said, this is what people, when I've talked to other pastors, i talked to other people in the city, they say, when, you, when people hear the, the name Newburgh Foursquare Church, they say, yeah, that, that's the church that cares for the poor. And I loved it because they didn't say that's the pastor that cares for the poor. That's the church that cares for the poor. Because a lot of people didn't even know who the pastor was, but they knew the reputation of the church, and the reputation of the church was not, oh yeah, that's the church that goes and pickets this, or that's the church that speaks out in judgment against this. No, that's the church that actually has compassion and cares for people. That should be something that's true of all of our lives, that when somebody knows that we're a follower of Jesus, their response is, oh, you're one of those in the positive, not you're one of those in the negative. Why? Because we live this out in a way that is about what we do, not what we're not doing or what we're withholding from people. And then another thing that this is not saying, another thing the rule does not say is it does not say, do to others what they have done to you. Oh, we wish it would. We really wish it did say that, didn't we? Because it would give us justification that somehow I, I get to do this because they've done it to me. It's called revenge, and we think it's sweet, but it's really bitter. And we want to be able to have something to justify. It's also called karma, what goes around comes around kind of a thing. And we, we oh yeah, they're going to get theirs. That's not what Jesus was saying. So many of us wish that that's what he was saying, but it's not. Why? Because something inside of us thinks that we are the judge. And we're the ultimate judge of what, what is fair and what is unfair. We want it to be fair. And so we think that we somehow have the ability to know exactly what is fair and unfair. And it is our job to make sure things are fair. You can ask my parents growing up, that was my mantra. It's not fair. And that meant basically it's not about me. When it's not about me, it's not fair. That's really what I was saying. But we all, we say that because we think somehow if I can make it fair, then it'll be okay. The problem with that is that what we have a tendency to do is when somebody does something to us and we respond back, we're trying to one-up them and ultimately it never diffuses the situation. It only adds fuel to the fire. It only makes it worse when we, when we take this as a revengeful kind of, I'm going to come after you. You've done this to me. Now I can do this to you. It just keeps going and never ends, and it gets worse and worse and worse. So in, in, when I was younger and, and being kind of the, to, to justify everything being fair, I had three older sisters in my family when we were growing up, and so that means I had four moms, so I had a whole lot of mothering growing up. And my oldest sister went through this one season where she, for some reason, thought it was her job to take on the mantle of motherhood for my life. And so when mom and dad would leave the house, she would be in charge. And I did not like that. And one of the things I really didn't like is that, that when we would watch TV when my parents were gone. She, her, her shows that she liked and what I liked were totally opposite. So she would turn the TV on. And she's loving watching chick flicks and movies that make you cry and sad movies and all this stuff. And all I wanted to do was watch sports. And so she'd turn the TV on on her movie. And I'm like, oh, we're not doing that. You know, she's seven years older than me. And so I go up and I change the channel. This is before clickers, okay? That's how old I am, all right? At least we were a little behind the times. Other people had clickers. And people were like, what are clickers? It's called a remote control for you who are a little younger. So, so I would literally manually have to get up and turn this. So I'd turn the station. She'd wait like 30 seconds. She'd, get, she'd turn it back. And I'd get up and I'd turn it back and just keep going back. And then a couple times it got physical. Start pushing each other and then the knob comes off and nobody can change the channel. That's a real bummer. <laughs> we would do that. And finally, you know, one time I got so fed up, I'm like, I, this is not fair. Because I want to watch sports. And she keeps doing this to me. I'm going to put an end to this. 
So I went outside, and I knew where the breaker was for the whole house. And I said, if I'm not watching sports, she's not watching lay movies. And I hit the breaker and shut all the power off to the whole house. And it stayed that way until my, nobody was watching TV until my parents got home. That was the last time I did that. My parents weren't very happy. And I, think, I think they contemplated putting a lock on the, on the box so I couldn't get to the breaker anymore. But the whole concept was, is, is nobody won. And I thought somehow because she watched a lay movie and she changed the channel that I had the right to come back and change the channel as well. And how many times in life are you and I doing that back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, thinking, well, I'm justified. Why? Because they did it to me first, which is the philosophy of a five-year-old. But we live that out as adults, don't we? We go back and forth and back and forth. And that's why Jesus was not saying this. This is not some kind of clause that says, I am justified in making things fair or taking revenge because they did it to me first. It also, the third thing that, that Jesus is not saying here, he is not saying expect others to do for you what you have done for them. In other words, you do something trying to get them to do it back to you. So in other words, you really don't care about the other person. They've just become a means to your end. I'll scratch your back if you'll scratch mine. And we live our life that way, expecting people to do something in return. Jesus is not saying that. Jesus is saying, regardless of their response, do to others what you would have them do unto you. There's no clause that says, if they do it for you. You do that beforehand. You initiate. You're the first one to be able to do it. And sometimes we lose sight of that. You know, I've shared many stories about my dad and how I watched, in fact, of any person in my life who I've known, my dad has sought and has, has done, has lived out the Sermon on the Mount probably better than any person I ever, I've met because I, I had the inside look at his life to watch him live these things out. And I've shared stories about how I learned about what it is to turn the other cheek when someone ripped off our family skateboard. And, and instead of going after the kid and justifying by saying, listen, it's not fair, give it back to me. My dad gave him money, even though he had our skateboard, and said, hey, why don't you go buy yourself a skateboard? And I had to learn this lesson the hard way that my dad knew what he was doing. And so the end result of that is that the next morning, the kid, the skateboard, and the money with his dad shows up on our front porch with an apology. I'm like, wow, this thing really works. I remember thinking about that, thinking, wow, if you do good stuff, then good stuff's going to come back to you, which, again, that's karma. That's not what Jesus is talking about. And another short story I shared in when my sisters were, uh, were younger and one Saturday morning, our family tradition was you get your allowance and we all go to 7-Eleven and we blow it on candy. So the three of them walked down the street to 7-Eleven and on their way back, they each had a bag of candy. These couple bigger girls encountered them and they grabbed my little sister who's closest in age to me and they pulled her behind their back and said, if you ever want to see your sister again, you've got to give me your candy. So my other sisters are like, uh, you know, I would have loved to have been there just think, they had to for a moment think, well, I don't know, you know, maybe. But anyway, so they hand over their candy, they get our sister back, and then when they got home, they told my dad this. And so I remember thinking, first of all, let's go get her. That was the first response. And then as my dad went to 7-Eleven, as we got in the car, my dad drove to 7-Eleven to buy more candy. Then I thought, ah, I've seen this one before. I know this, and I know what's going to happen. He's going to give her the candy. So then I was okay with that. But in my, the way the story was supposed to unfold for me is that when he gave her the candy, she was supposed to give all the candy back. That's the way it's supposed to work, right? Because we're doing something good. She's going to do something good for us. So we found her some, down some alleyway. My sister's in the car. So we, my dad gets out, and she sees my sisters in the car. She knows who they are. You can see it on her face. And so he walks over with a big old bag of candy and says, Hey, I heard you like candy. She, so he goes, I went to someone and bought you some more. Here you go and hand it to her. She looks at him and she says, thanks, and she walks away. I'm like, wait, that's not, that's not the trick. That's not the way it's supposed to work. She's supposed to go, oh, yes, here's all the candy, all the stuff that I ripped off from your girls. 
that's not the way it ended. Why? Because my dad wasn't doing it so that somehow good stuff would happen to us. He was simply doing it to live out this principle. He was treating her how he would want to be treated, not so that she would treat him back that way. And I think if you and I understand that, then you and I realize that, that I don't know what happened to her. I don't know. I'll let, let, let God take care of what happened to her. Who knows? Maybe God used that in her life down the line to do something that got her to turn towards the Lord. I don't know. But I know in that context, my dad was just simply living that out. So now the question is, how do you and I follow this one rule? The one rule that Jesus gives us in the Sermon on the Mount. How do we live this out? How do we follow it? So again, so looking back at, at the, the previous chapters, particularly chapter 5, we're going to look at Matthew chapter 5, and there's going to be a couple passages I'm going to reference. Jesus explains what this looks like in our life. He explains, this is how you follow this one rule in your life. The first one is this way, is that you and I have to learn to love others as you want to be loved. Jesus gets specific. Matthew 5, verse 43 and 44. He says, You have heard that it was said, Love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. What is Jesus saying? Treat somebody else the way you want to be treated. Care for them. In fact, the concept of loving your neighbor Love your neighbor the way you want to be loved. Care for your neighbor the way you want to be cared for. Jesus is saying this is the tangible way of how you live this concept out. That means you and I have to learn to love people who are not very lovable. People who are prickly. People who have sharp edges. People who are offensive. People who are bitter and angry. And they're not fun to be around. Those are the kind of people that Jesus says learn to love them. Because if you were in the same situation, what would you want? You would want people to love you too. You know, I've seen this demonstrated. It's like, it's not this principle that you test, but it's God's work in people's lives. You know, when, when again, when we were in Newburgh, Kim, Kim made a friend of our next door neighbor that I would have never thought would have been our friend. Some of you heard me share the story where, you know, her commitment when she found out that pastors were moving in, into it next door to her was to go into her backyard. She announces to the neighborhood, I'm going to get naked and get drunk until they move. That was her commitment to the neighborhood. Because she didn't want Christians or, or pastors living next to her. She didn't like us. She had probably heard all the things Christians were against, and she didn't want that next door, next door to her. But every time we had encounters with her, every time that she would cuss intentionally just to offend us, or she would do something just to rub us the wrong way, our response would be love and compassion, particularly Kim. Kim would reach out to her. Kim would care for her. Kim would love her. Kim would just do anything to show compassion to her. And over time, this woman who was as hard as hard could be, she started to melt. The sharp edges started to kind of get filed off a little bit. And more and more, when, when she would go through difficulties in her life, she would call Kim. She would break down this tough woman exterior. She would just sob like a baby because she's going through brokenness and pain in her life. And it went from, I can't stand my neighbors because I, I got to get them out of here because I don't want them living next to me too. Actually, when they actually ended up buying another house and moving away, I could tell that there was a sadness that now we're not neighbors anymore. Because I watched Kim particularly, she's a little more patient than I am, love our neighbor beyond herself and love her to the point where she began to be changed and began to be softer. And not that she was perfect, but something happened in her. Something changed in her. And it was because we didn't respond the way she responded to us. We didn't get crazy and we didn't yell at her and we did get angry and didn't do things to rub her the wrong way. We just tried to learn to love her. And then second thing, Second thing of how you and I live this out and follow this rule is to learn to forgive others as you want to be forgiven. 
So Jesus says in Matthew 5 again, this is verse 23 and 24, Therefore, if you're offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them. Then come and offer your gift. Jesus is describing for you and I what it looks like when we learn to forgive others the way that we want to be forgiven, which means, I love what Jesus says here. He says, first go. He doesn't say wait. He doesn't say when you know that you're at odds with somebody else, wait for them to figure it out, wait for them to initiate, to come to you, and then make sure you're reconciled and make sure that there's forgiveness. No, he says, you be the first one. First you go. You be the initiator. You be the person who lives out doing to that person what you would want them to do to you. In other words, if you know that you have an issue with somebody else, you would love for them to be the initiator. So you be the initiator first. How many times in our pride do we sit back when we know we're at odds with people and we said, no, I'm not going to wait. They have to. They're the ones that did something worse. So I'm just going to wait and they're going to have to respond first. I'm not doing anything. I've seen it happen. It happens in our lives. And it's our pride that won't let us say, you know what, I'm going to be humble and I'm going to ask for forgiveness and I'm going to be the one to initiate reconciliation. The reason that's so important is that we see the ultimate demonstration in Jesus. Jesus didn't sit up in heaven and said, man, man, humanity is really messed up. I'm going to wait for them to get their act together and come to me. No, what did he do? He came into our world, even though we were the offending party. He came to us to reconcile us back to God. He didn't wait for us to get our act together. And that's what he's asking us to treat, of, to do towards other people. And the reason this is so important, life is too short to live in, a sen- in, in offense and broken relationships. It is. It just, it wastes our time and our energy and our focus on what God is doing. And it's, it's, it's not unlike you and I. When we, when we live out broken relationships and we live in offense, it, it's something that doesn't just affect the other person. It affects us as well. Because we carry around a burden and a load that God has created us not to carry. We're not designed for it, but we'll do it. We'll carry it because we're going to hang on to things that we should be letting go of. It's kind of like carrying a backpack. And every time you are in a relationship and there's an offense or somebody hurts you or you do something to somebody else, it's like taking a brick and putting it in the backpack. Now, each one of us could handle two or three or four bricks. But what happens when the brick count gets up to 5, 10, 15, or 20, maybe 50 bricks? That's a heavy backpack. Now now you're walking around in life weighed down, and every time you want to move forward, every time you want to do something, all you feel is this weight that's crushing you. Why? Because you won't initiate. Because you won't do first what you would desire others to do for you or do to you. And because of that, there's this weight that many of us carry that's unnecessary. And what's beautiful is when reconciliation begins to happen, when forgiveness is extended, it's like somebody reaching into that backpack one at a time, pulling out those bricks. And before you know it, the bricks disappear. And then once the bricks disappear, there's no need for the backpack anymore. And you and I walk around free and alive. And we never worry about who we're going to run into. You never find yourself in situations like, oh, I hope that person doesn't show up because I know we're at odds. To be free, to not have that, to be drama-free in life is what God intended for you and I to be. But that's what you and I have to live out, what this means. We have to be initiators of reconciliation in the lives of people. Jesus did it for us. He calls us to do it for other people. And when we do that, you and I will see freedom to come to us and freedom come to other people. There are people in our lives today that are being bound by us because we won't forgive them. Because we won't let it go. Yet Jesus has forgiven us all those bricks in our backpack. 
what we should be doing is forgiving the other people for what they have done to us. Now, I know, and I say this each time, I will have one or two people come up to me after service and say, hey, I have tried that, but they weren't open. They weren't open to reconciliation or forgiveness. Then you and I live out what Paul said in Romans when he said, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everybody. You try to live at peace, and then you leave God up to do what he's going to do in their life as long as you are being the initiator of reconciliation and let God work on the other person. And then finally, the final thing that you and I need to understand as far as this one rule is that it means that you and I have to be willing to sacrifice for others as you and I want to be sacrificed for. Jesus says in Matthew 5, verse 41, 42, he says, If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. That's difficult. Sacrifice. Being, giving, being willing to give of yourself. And I think, you know, one of the areas of sacrifice that is probably the most difficult for many of us, I know it is for me, is being inconvenienced. See, you and I, we, we're willing to sacrifice as long as we can calculate our sacrifice, as long as we can schedule our sacrifice, and as long as our sacrifice doesn't cost us too much. Am I right? Some of you are laughing nervously, I know, because it's true. And I'm that way too. Especially when we live by a calendar or we map out what our day is going to look like or what our life or our week or whatever it is going to look like, and then something enters the equation that's not a part of the formula that we've already put into motion. And it throws everything off. We struggle with that. Because it really sacrificed many times for us. It is the ultimate sacrifice of giving everything to follow Jesus. But a lot of times it comes in the form of inconvenience. Irritation. Read through the Gospels. And, and write down how many times Jesus heals somebody when it, was, it wasn't scripted for that day. Jesus was always on his way somewhere else when somebody comes up to him and cries out for mercy or for help. And what does Jesus do? Well, you know, I'm on a tight schedule. I am the son of God, you know, and I have things to do. No, what did he do? He always stopped. He always listened, and he healed, and he restored, and he brought salvation out of inconvenience. Now, if it was me, I probably thought, no, I just don't have time. It doesn't fit in my schedule. I haven't put it down. You can call the office and make an appointment, and then maybe we can deal with it then, right? That's how we are. Until God says, listen, if you're really going to learn to be someone who sacrifices for others the way you would want them to sacrifice for you, crisis doesn't happen on a schedule. It never does. It's never convenient and it's never easy. But when it comes up, it's something that God calls us to be willing to do. One of those times where I had to learn that lesson, I've shared the story. I had lunch with a homeless woman about probably about 12, I don't know, 12, 13 years ago. And I, I still remember the day and I still remember her name. Her name is Sue. And all we had was about a 20, 25-minute encounter. And she'll never know what God was doing in me during that encounter that changed me and got my attention. Because I was having a day away to seek God and be holy and spiritual and to, to allow God to just to pour into me. And during that time, as I was down in Malibu, I was dropping by McDonald's, God told me, you're going to buy lunch for a homeless person. And then I got into a ba- debate with him about whether I was going to do that or not. Because I knew I had five bucks in my wallet. I knew what five bucks could buy at McDonald's. And it wasn't lunch for two. It was lunch for one. And so I told God on the way to McDonald's, I said, the only way I'm buying a homeless person lunch is if, when I walk into McDonald's, if there is a homeless person. So I was kind of putting God to the test. Don't ever do that. You always lose, and he always is, he wins, and ultimately you win too. But, so I walked in the dining room, I scanned the dining room, and then there she was sitting right by the door. Her name was Sue. And I walked over to her, and I could tell, I knew, I had worked at McDonald's, so I knew, I knew kind of the M.O. She was sitting there, she'd probably been sitting there for hours, 
And because you're not allowed to loiter, she had gotten a cup of coffee, which is probably all she could afford, and then she could get refills. And so she was kind of probably stretching out her refills as long as she could so she could stay inside McDonald's. So I walked over to her, and I said, hey, I said, are, are you hungry? And she said, yeah. I said, could I buy you lunch? She goes, oh, I would love for you to buy me lunch. So I went up to the counter, and I bought what I could buy for her, and I was able to get, like, a cheeseburger for me with a cup of water, which was not what I wanted for lunch. But so I went out, and I sat down, and I got her the food, and so we started talking. And within probably two minutes of the conversation, I could realize she was struggling mentally, that there was things going on. She started talking to me as though I was a long-lost brother. She was calling me by another name. I kept introducing myself to her. She was, I could tell she wasn't all there, and she was struggling. And so we sat there for 20 minutes, and I tried to talk with her. And I remember in my mind what was going through is thinking, okay, Jesus, I've done what you've called me to do, and now you're going to have some great story that's going to unfold. I'm going to save this homeless woman and tell everybody about what a great person I am. Honestly, that's what's going through my mind. I know it's horrible, really. It is. So I'm having this 20-minute conversation that went nowhere. It literally went nowhere. And, and by the time we finished lunch, I said, well, you know, I said, I said, God bless you. And I got up to leave, and she still didn't even know who I was, even though I introduced myself five or six times. And I remember walking outside the door of McDonald's, and I looked up to God and said, why? Why would you have me do that? And his response was very specific. He said, because I wanted to see if you would. That's all he said. And what he was saying to me is that you're, you want to talk about what it is to follow me, but you don't want to be inconvenienced by people. You don't want to be put off your schedule. You don't want to have to adjust things in order to sacrifice for other people. And I remember, not to say that everything's been perfect the last dozen years. You can ask my family about that. But understanding the fact that there are times that, that God is going to challenge us and sacrifice for many of us comes in the form of being willing to be inconvenienced. To step outside of our schedule or outside of our comfort zone or outside of what's easy, being willing to give of other people. If I was Sue and I was living on the streets of Malibu, I probably would want somebody to buy me lunch too. And even if I couldn't understand the conversation, I'd probably want somebody to sit with me for 20 minutes, even though they couldn't understand me. I would want those things. And the same thing is true for you and I, is to think in terms of what other people experience, to think outside ourselves. And this is one of the challenges, is sometimes our life is so much about us, we can't even see the person sitting next to us. We can't see the person driving next to us. We can't see the person living next to us. We can't see them. Why? Because all our life has become is about us. So to have a category where I actually do something for somebody else and treat them the way that I would want them to treat me, That's difficult because we have a hard time getting outside of ourselves. And so what I I like to do is the worship team, they can go ahead and start making their way back up. I want to close with this. We're going to move towards a time of communion, but we're going to do communion a little bit differently than, than we might normally have done it. So when we come to communion, communion is something that we do at least once a month in our church, and it's it's these elements that are reminders. They're signs that point to something more significant. And those two elements are bread and a cup. Normally, cracker and juice. Those are symbols that point to something greater. The bread points to Jesus' body broken for you and I, and the cup, his blood that was shed for us, that he died on the cross for you and I. And Jesus, 2,000 years ago, gathered his disciples together for the first time and said, take this food, take this meal, and do this to remember what I've done for you. And so that's why we do that. But you know what happens, it happens in our churches, it happens in any church, and it happened 2,000 years ago as well. That this, this encounter of communion many times becomes a very closed, almost self-centered experience. 
where we, you know, in a moment, you know, you know the routine if you've been in No Hope. You're going to get up, you're going to go to one of the four stations, you're going to get the cracker, and you're going to get the juice, and then you're going to come back to your seat. And the only time you're going to acknowledge somebody is if they cut in front of you on your way to the communion table. But when you get back to your seat, we always do this. Okay, just between you and God, review your life. Ask God to do this in your brokenness. And, and those are good things. But let's roll the clock back 2,000 years ago. When Jesus sat down with his original disciples and they received the first communion, do you know what they were doing? They were having dinner together. They were sitting around a table. By the way, Da Vinci's picture, uh-uh. They weren't all lined up for a photo, okay? That's not the way it worked. They were having a common meal together where Jesus broke bread and he gave them a cup. They were looking at each other in their eyes. They were seeing each other's faces and Jesus was explaining what they were doing. It was a very relational environment they were in. And the reason I think that's so important for you and I is that we all come to the cross on a level playing field. We're all broken. We're all sinners. None of us is above the other. And Jesus died on the cross, not just for you. Which we always make, oh, he died just for you. If you're the only person. Yeah, he died for you, but he died for all of us. He died for all of us to, to be able to participate in that. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 11, which is a passage we a lot of times we go to for communion, Paul was addressing some, some bad issues in the church at Corinth. And we always, there's a passage where Paul says, listen, you need to examine yourself. You know the context it's in? is that when they were having communion together, you know what was happening? They were having a meal. People would arrive early and they would eat as much as they could because they wanted to be satisfied and full. And then when people came late, there was no food left. And so Paul was saying, listen, you're not even acknowledging the people around you. You're so focused on yourself in the communion meal that you're not realizing this is for everybody. That's what his correction was to the church at Corinth. It's not just about you. It's about all of us. And so with that in mind, and in fact, with the concept of doing for others what you would want them to do for you, this is what I'd like us to do. In a moment, you're going to have a chance to go to the stations, and what you're going to find is a little bit different than usual. And this is just out of practicality. You're going to find uh, a cup and a wafer all packaged together in one, okay? You go buy them in a box. It's really like it's portable communion. It's not the typical cup and the individual cracker. And the reason that we've done that is because what I'd like you to do is in a moment when you go to the table, I want you to find one person. And you're going to go to the table together. And you may be going with your spouse, but listen, if it takes three of you going together, I want that. I don't want any person in this room to be left by themselves. But you're going to go, if it's two, if it's three, that's fine. But make sure that nobody's by themselves. So if two of you get up and you see someone sit by themselves, you welcome them to go with you. And I want you to come to the table. I want you to take those elements, those, that wafer and cup, and go back to your seat. And then I want you to pray for each other. Just briefly. One person can pray. That's all it has to be. And then you exchange the communion that you have. You don't take what you have. You give it away. And then in turn, you let the other person give you their communion. And what you're saying is, I am doing for you what I would desire you to do for me. I am giving you the remembrance of Jesus' sacrifice for you because I want you to do the same for me as Jesus did it 2,000 years ago with his disciples when they broke bread and they took the cup that we acknowledged people around us. And that is evidence of the fact that Jesus' sacrifice is for all of us, not just me, but for all of us. Lord Jesus, we thank you. Thank you for your sacrifice. Thank you for your death for all of humanity. 
And Lord, as we come to this table again, which reminds us of what you did for us, we also want to be reminded that you didn't just do it for us, you did it for all of us. So Lord, I know this may be a challenge for some of us. We, we want to be kind of individualistic and separate and alone, but Lord, I pray that you would help us to step out. And even in the act of receiving communion, we're acknowledging other people around us. We are seeing others and seeing their need for the cross as much as our need for the cross. So that ultimately, Lord, because I know someday where all this leads, when we are reconciled back to you and we are standing in the throne room, we will be worshiping not as individuals. We will be worshiping as people from every tongue, tribe, and nation surrounding the throne together in your presence. So, Lord, let us capture some of that now as we receive communion together. In Jesus' name, amen.